Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us here at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at uh, Central Campus, as well as those in one of our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to say hello to our online viewers as well. You heard the announcement today about the training opportunity for those exploring the possibility of leading a community group. So if the Lord is calling you to a deeper involvement in our church, this is a, a great uh, opportunity for ministry. So prayerfully consider that, and if you're interested, talk to one of our pastors or ministry leaders at the Connect Tables. A few weeks ago, I preached from Acts chapter 4, a message titled, Bold Witnessing. We saw from the example of the apostles, Peter and John, how to be bold in sharing our faith with others around us. Today, I want to continue on the same theme of boldness and show you how it is reflected in our prayer life. It was a few years ago when I stumbled upon a Bible verse that has stayed in my heart, Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, this verse gives us a fascinating contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Solomon tells us in this proverb, the wicked are always on the run. You know, as soon as a thief sees a police car, he gets the jitters, even if the police have no intention of chasing him. But the righteous are bold as a lion. And when I picture a lion, I think about its uh, mighty, thunderous roar that can be heard up to five miles. I see a creature that has no need to be afraid of anything. Unquestionably, the lion is the king of all beasts. They are a symbol of strength, power, and ferocity. And the Bible tells us the stature of a righteous is like that of a lion. When we are walking in right relationship with God, when our conscience is clear, then you and I have that incredible inner strength and confidence that causes us not to be afraid of anything surrounding us. But the wicked, in contrast, are easily intimidated. They run even when no one is pursuing them. But as I look at our culture today, it looks like it's working the other way around. The wicked seem to be bold in their acts of wickedness. Promiscuity seems to be obvious and on bold display everywhere. And the righteous are backed into a corner, insecure and covering in fear. Paul Coughlin, in an article on the Focus on the Family website, wrote these insightful words. Hear this. Unfortunately, each generation has its preferred virtues the ones they emphasize at the expense of others, leading to cultural, psychological, and spiritual blind spots and deficiencies. Today, within evangelical culture, we extol the gentle virtues, often at the expense and even ignorance of the tougher virtues. None more key than courage and its fruits of fortitude, perseverance, and especially strength. Isn't that a valid point? 
We are looking at a culture today that has major blind spots, and especially in the church culture, it is not often we associate a righteous, godly person with this attribute of boldness. We don't see it as a spiritual quality. Even we view Jesus as meek and submissive, sitting with lambs and doting over children. But let's not forget that Jesus of the Gospels had no problems in confronting the religious leaders of his time. Jesus did not sugarcoat the truth. He wasn't diplomatic. Once he even overturned the moneylenders' tables and caused frenzy in the temple courts. And I tell you, it needs courage to willingly embrace the cross. Jesus was no wimp. But our generation has lost sight of courage as a defining virtue of Christians and how it underpins all other virtues. But as we look at the church in the book of Acts, the men and women of the early church were bold as lions. It was a church on the move. And ordinary people filled with God's Holy Spirit did extraordinary things because they were bold and courageous. They faced their fears. They refused to bow down before the superpowers of their day. We see this in Acts chapter 4. Let me give you the context. Peter and John stood before the highest authority of their time because they had healed a crippled man and used that opportunity to testify about the resurrection of Jesus. And they did this in the Jewish temple court. Many people came to listen to their bold preaching and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now Peter and John were convicted and brought before the great Jewish Sanhedrin, comprising of 70 prominent men of the nation, including the high priest. And you need to know, this was the same group that had sentenced Jesus to be crucified just a few weeks earlier. But the apostles refused to cave into their pressures and testify to the gospel, unmindful of the consequences. To the extent the Sanhedrin was left speechless, the Supreme Court of their time stood stunned, and among all the qualities that stood out in Peter and John, it was their boldness that was so strikingly obvious. The apostles were no experts of the law. They had no professional training. They had no credentials. They had not gone through the elaborate religious schooling system. But these were ordinary, simple-minded laymen. And yet the Jewish leaders witnessed their courage, and they knew unmistakably that these men had been with Jesus because the mark of the master was stamped on their life. The Sanhedrin threatened them not to speak again in the name of Jesus. They banned any evangelistic efforts in the city. They let them go after warning them of dire consequences. The early church was faced with a big hurdle, a major roadblock, an opposition that threatened their very existence. You know, they could have disbanded at this very point. They could have played it safe and packed their bags and returned back to their old way of life. But rather, the early church gathered together in prayer to bring their needs and petitions before God. And we're going to travel back 2,000 years in history 
to a prayer meeting of the early church and learn from them how to pray bold prayers. Would you please stand as we read our text for today from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Father, it is our heart's desire today that there will be a surge of boldness in this place, that as we reflect on this prayer meeting that happened 2,000 years ago, it will have an impact on our life, that you will teach us how to pray, bold prayers, prayers that advance your kingdom. And God, that you will minister to us in the power of your spirit. May we experience a fresh outpouring of your spirit even today in this place, Lord Jesus, that you will be exalted and your name will be glorified. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. The president of uh, International Justice Mission, Gary Hogan, in his book, Just Courage, raises a pertinent question. In my Christian life, do I see myself playing offense or defense? And he goes on to say, many Christians are so busy defending their own end zone that they have lost the joy of scoring touchdowns. And any time in history when the church played defensively, it was to their own detriment. The church in the first century was clearly outnumbered. They were a small minority in comparison to the strength of the Jewish religion and the power of Rome. What did they do when they were faced with this major crisis? They were not going to become defensive, but they used the most potent ammunition in their arsenal, prayer. A passage begins in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Peter and John had a small group of godly believers to go to with whom they were able to share all of these experiences, including the threats from the Sanhedrin. 
Many times we don't realize the value of being in Christian community until we are faced with a crisis. When we live our Christian life in isolation, we are ill-equipped to deal with an emergency. But when we are in community with God's people, then you have some precious people to go to and share your struggles to confide. You have a support system and godly encouragement of other believers. And more importantly, they can lift you up with their prayers. That's one of the reasons why some of you need to be connected here at Sinistry Church and be part of a community where it is difficult to face a crisis in isolation. And some of you need to step up and lead a community that will serve as a place of refuge for those in need. Now, having heard about the threats from the Sanhedrin, the early church immediately looked up to God in prayer. Prayer was top priority to them. They relied on prayer rather than activism. You know, if in our day, our government were to come up with a bill that opposes our beliefs, what is our knee-jerk reaction? If we are honest, our instinctive reaction is to write a petition, call our MP's office, organize a rally, pour out our complaints. And I'm not saying activism is unimportant. There is definitely a place for it. But as we see in the book of Acts, prayer ought to be our first response. And what we read in our passage is so refreshing. The first part of verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. For a moment, just visualize this in your mind. A group of people praying in one accord, huddled inside a small house 2,000 years ago. That was the early church prayer meeting. Prayer was the default mode of the early church. They were not complaining about losing their freedom of speech. They did not seek to take a break, keep it low-key, and regroup after some time when the persecution finally ceases. They are not contemplating on halting their evangelistic efforts. But the early church raised their voices in one accord in prayer to God. They prayed together as a community. For what they were facing was not a political problem. This was a spiritual problem. So they looked to the source of their power. The book of Acts records the early church in prayer at least 30 times. And this is probably the longest prayer that has been recorded in Acts. And as you read this prayer, you will realize this is not some mechanical prayer which involves mere repetition of words and information that God already knows. But this is a strategic thoughtful prayer that's informed by the scripture. And they begin with these words, the last part of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Before they go into their need, before talking about the pressing problem on their hands, they first and foremost make reference to the character of God. They call him the sovereign Lord, 
a ruler of unchallengeable power. The word for sovereign Lord used in our text is a rare one. It's the Greek word despotis, from which we get our English word despot. The word despot has taken a negative connotation in our usage today. But its original meaning denotes someone who is in charge and holds absolute power. So it speaks of a God who is always on top of things. He is in full control over what has happened in the past in history. He is in control over what is happening right now. And he is in absolute control over what is going to happen in the future. And he's not just a sovereign God, but he's also the creator God who made all things, the heaven and earth and the seas and all peoples, including the religious authorities. The early church knew who they were talking to. Their prayers were directed to God. Have you noticed in our prayer meetings today how often our prayers are horizontal as opposed to being vertical. We use prayer as a form of comforting each other, talking to each other. A typical prayer would look like this. Lord, you know how John is struggling as a result of losing his job. He is feeling so bad. He is discouraged. He has lost all his self-confidence. His bank balance is low. Could you please help poor John? Do you think God will go? Oh, really? Thanks for letting me know. You know, that's why the great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, some people's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set on fire in the middle. <laughs> now, why did the early church make reference here to God's sovereignty? Because the opposition they were facing seemed so daunting, so gigantic in proportion. The enemy was so powerful and formidable and the threat so severe that it was easy for them to be overwhelmed by the problems at hand. But they desperately needed to look away from the problem to the problem solver. Now, God does not need to be reminded of who he is. But we desperately need to remind ourselves who he is so we can see our problems in light of that reality. So the early church took five verses to talk about God and two verses to present their petitions. Today when we pray, we are quick to rush to our needs without taking time to remind ourselves who we are talking to. When the prayer meeting in Acts began with an address to God as sovereign, it clarified a lot of things. The Sanhedrin may have had a lot of authority. They were the 70 most influential people in the nation. They could pass laws and edicts and all of that, but their authority was limited and subject to God's authority. Their power dwarfed in comparison to the one they were praying to. You know, look at what God says about himself in the Bible. Here in Jeremiah 32, verse 27, he says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Do we realize that's the God whom we are praying to? 
That he is not perplexed by what seems like an impossible situation in your mind. That there is no limit to God's power. That nothing is impossible for him. That there is no power or no force in this entire universe that can stop the Lord Almighty. If your mind were to comprehend all of these truths about the unlimited power of God, it puts your problems into perspective. Now, let me give you a practical tip. When you're praying, think about a specific attribute or character of God that would be relevant to your prayer request and reflect on it, dwell on it before you start praying for that need. When we ask for forgiveness, when we know we have fallen short, We appeal to God's mercy and grace. When we are in need of comfort, we appeal to His compassion and love. When we are praying for our imperfect children, we appeal to Him as our Heavenly Father who loves His imperfect children unconditionally. When we are hurt and misunderstood, we appeal to a God who understands, who is all-knowing. When we are faced with impossible odds, We speak to a God who is omnipotent. And when things spiral out of control in your life and in the world that we live, we appeal to His sovereignty and control over all things. When God becomes bigger and bigger in our radar screen, then our problems become smaller and smaller. They shrink. And our heart is filled with a deep sense of hope. Never forget this. Bold prayers are rooted in the character of God. The very next element of the early church's prayer is a reference to the Bible. Verses 25 and 26. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they were quoting from memory Psalm 2. And why this particular psalm? It's because in that psalm, the situation that King David was facing was similar to what now the church was wrestling with. So the psalm helped them to guide them on how to pray. David, as king of Israel, faced a crisis when he was threatened by the nations surrounding him. But David, as God's anointed, stakes claim on God's call upon his life and that all these attempts of the nations to overthrow him would be futile because of that. The early church knew God's word and used it effectively to give direction to their prayers. Because bold prayers are rooted in God's word. They are not just finding a vague proof text from the Old Testament, because you'll find out that while David is writing in Psalm 2 about the revolt of the nations against Israel, he's also clearly speaking prophetically to the opposition of the nations against the coming Messiah, the anointed one. So the early church took this cue from the Bible and they apply it to their present situation. 
verses 27 and 28, we find, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So what God spoke through David a thousand years ago had been playing out recently in their midst. Jesus, who is the true anointed one, faced formidable oppositions. Herod and Pontius Pilate, all of Rome, along with the people of Israel and all the religious leaders, rejected Jesus. They collectively joined hands to oppose him. They mocked him, scorned him, spit on him, and beat him, and they took his life. And all of this was no surprise to God, but it happened in accordance with God's plan. God using the free will of man to accomplish his own end goals. So the very opposition that led to the death of Jesus was used by God to redeem the world from its sins. And God raised Jesus from the dead to make a declaration to the world that his plans and his purposes cannot be thwarted. So on the basis of Scripture, the early church concluded whatever oppositions they were facing cannot stand because an attack on the church is an attack on God himself. And this mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and bring everything under the lordship of Jesus was an unfailing mission. It's a mission that cannot falter. And the early church had not come to praying for their request yet, but they had so much clarity on what to pray for. Do you see how our prayers become so deep and rich when it is being informed by Scripture? The first century believers had stored God's Word in their hearts, and it served them very well. You know, I'm afraid most of our prayers today are mere repetition of information. We keep saying the same thing over and over in a few different ways. And no wonder we get bored when we pray for a particular issue over a prolonged period of time. We have to learn to pray the Bible. It is the secret to a meaningful prayer life. Somehow in our minds, we put prayer and scripture in two different categories as though they are mutually exclusive. But the truth is, it is when they come together that they become such a powerful combination. So here's another practical tip. Ask this question before you pray. What does the Bible have to say about the situation I'm facing currently? Is there a passage of promise in the Bible that can guide my prayer? Sometimes all you have to do is slowly read a passage of Scripture and pray about all that comes to your mind. And you will be surprised to see how this will have an impact on your life of intercession. So as we examine this model prayer of the early church, they first made reference to the attribute of God that was relevant to their situation. 
Then they find a passage in the scripture that was parallel to their situation. And now they're finally ready to make their petition. And what is incredible here is they are not praying for what you and I would expect them to pray. Lord, stop the persecution. Bring an end to this assault against the church. Please provide us safety and protection. Knock down the teeth of your enemies. None of that. In fact, look at the petition in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Having sifted their experience through the eyes of God's attribute and through the scripture, they were clear on what petitions they needed to make. The first petition is to keep doing the very thing that has gotten them into trouble in the first place. This is a prayer to be obedient to God's commands, no matter the opposition, that they will stay faithful and true to the evangelistic task that Jesus had entrusted to them. For no evil power can thwart God's plans, but when the church refuses to remain faithful to God's commands, we have a problem on our hands. The church's Disobedience can seriously hinder the work of God more than any external oppositions. So the early church's concern was not for their safety, but for the mission of God to advance through their obedience and faithful proclamation. Now here's their second petition, verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The early church is not praying for divine judgment on their enemies. They are not asking God to strike them with diseases or take revenge on them like you see in the Psalms. Rather, they were beseeching God for a demonstration of his power like never before. They were praying for a move of God's spirit that will sweep over the city. See, our prayers are an overflow of what we believe in our hearts. If you want to know what a person truly believes, pay attention to their prayers. And what the early church was asking here reflected their core convictions. They were praying that God will authenticate their message by working alongside them. So they asked God to stretch forth his hand to perform signs and wonders, miracles of healing that will bless the community, bless the city, even their enemies. Now let me tell you, this is not our conventional safe prayer. This was a bold prayer that shook the very gates of hell. So many of us pray such guarded prayers, such vague prayers, cautious prayers, as though God is going to be overwhelmed by what we are asking him to do. And all along, God is waiting for someone who will lay hold of his promises and believe that he will come and honor his word in our midst. Bold prayers 
are a cry for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. I once heard Pastor Craig Rochelle challenge his congregation with these words. If God were to say yes to everything that you had prayed for this past week, what would be different in the world today? Reflect on that for a moment. Would God's kingdom advance? Pastor Craig goes on to say, if God answered all our prayers, for some of us, our food will be blessed. We will have traveling mercies and we will reach our destination safely. Our petty problems will disappear and vanish from our life. But what would be different in our world as a result? Not much. Do you want to know what difference prayer made in the early church? Look at the next verse, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We see here a physical demonstration of God's power. His power caused the ground to shake. And the group of people, every one of them, were filled with God's Holy Spirit. And they went on to speak His word with boldness. Well, if you think Peter and John were bold, imagine the entire early church at the time of eight to 10,000 men, women, and children, spirit-filled, infused with the same measure of boldness like the apostles, and testifying as a community to the gospel with their words and deeds and acts of kindness. What a vibrant church that would have been. No wonder they turned their world upside down in the space of a generation. And I tell you, we desperately need a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit here in our world today, a fresh infusion of His boldness in His church. Because we are facing some major challenges in our world in advancing God's mission. And we fool ourselves if we think we can solve these problems with our strategies, cleverly thought out techniques, wisdom, knowledge, and expertise. For we live in a world that is built on free will instead of God's will. We may not have an overt persecution of Christians in North America, but we do have a covert persecution, and the hostility is only rising. Along with that, we face so many other challenges. An ungodly entertainment industry that has so saturated our world that it has made us spiritually numb. Medical technology that is so advanced that people don't look to God, they look to doctors to save their life. We live in a materialistic world that is so obsessed with making money and they have made pleasure as the end goal of their life. We have a family system that is so battered and bruised that it is on the verge of a collapse. 
And we have a generation of young people who are growing up without a moral compass to direct their decisions. And in addition to that, we have a church that has so compromised the word of truth and embraced the values of the world that you can hardly tell the difference between the two. Oh yes, we are faced with numerous daunting challenges. As serious as these challenges are, we take encouragement from history from what God has done. For he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. So what we really need is an army of believers who are bold and courageous, who follow the example of the early church in their spirit-filled witness and passionate prayers. And what God did for them 2,000 years ago, He's well able to do it for us today. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. I want us to maintain a moment of silence, to be sensitive to God's voice, and reflect on the challenge the Lord has brought to us today through His Word. I want you to reflect again on this question. If God were to say to you right now, ask me one thing and I will give it to you. What would you ask God to do for you? And what difference would that make in the world? You maintain a moment of silence just to reflect in God's presence and allow His Spirit to minister to each one of us individually. And after that, I'll close us in prayer. Father, we come before you like the early church did, on our knees, acknowledging our humble dependence on you. As we look at our world, we see the challenges and they are so daunting. And we don't have the resources to deal with these problems. But we know you do, because you are seated on the throne, high and exalted. And you hold this entire universe in the palm of your hand. Lord, you have not lost control over this world or over our life. So we cry out to you now. God, that you would repeat what you have done so many times in history. 
that you will not allow your people to be discouraged, to hide. Rather, we will see a surge of boldness that comes from knowing you. We pray that there will be a great deal of God confidence in our hearts. And we will be able to face these personal challenges in our lives and in the world to continue to advance the mission that you have given to us for this is a mission that cannot fail. Lord, we ask for a a fresh outpouring of your spirit in this place. God, as you fill every one of us, Help us now to speak your words with boldness, to live out our lives, to demonstrate the courage of the early church. We pray, oh God, that there will be a ripple effect of that across our city, that as we faithfully live out our calling, as we wholeheartedly surrender our lives to you, we would see your kingdom advance in our midst, that this world will be turned upside down for the glory of your name. Even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.